Well, welcome this morning to Christ Community Church. It's great to have you here with us, whether you are joining us in person or whether you're with us on live stream. It is great to have you here this morning. We are finishing our series on the book of James. And uh, my name is Brent. I'm one of the elders here at Christ Community Church. And it's an honor to get to finish this great book with you here this morning. Um, You know, it's been an interesting year. It's been an incredible year by almost any measure as we have survived in many ways 2020. And we're, we're about halfway through it. We're approaching the end of summertime officially. But what an incredible year. I know at the very beginning of this year, they were, uh, the big news was impeachment, right? They, they were impeaching the president, and that was a huge deal. That was a big deal in the news for almost the entire month of January. Uh, then there were the fires, of course, in Australia, which were a huge deal. I mean, it was uh, incredible that these raging fires were going on in Australia, and we thought that might be the big story of the year. Of course, and then in March, uh, we, we went into pandemic mode, and for the last you know, five or six months, we have been working through or dealing with this pandemic, COVID-19, and that has changed and altered all of our lives in many ways and, and resulted in chaos throughout the country. It has been a summer, in particular, of social unrest. I mean, you can uh, think of the, the past three or four months and the, and the social unrest that has been going on in this country, the re- remarkableness of the, of the activities that are going on in the cities throughout our country. Just this past week, we were all in hurricane preparation mode as we, uh, for the you know, first time in, in, in a, the past three or four years, are, we're awaiting the, the arrival of a hurricane, and we're all very grateful that that missed most of us although some of us were without power for part of the the week this week. And then, of course, now with school starting back up, a lot of us are are dealing with children at home, with homeschool, and and, and the difficulty that comes along with the new normal in a pandemic-type situation. I mean, what a remarkable year. Just, Just that list, there's even more that you could add to that. But just that list is a remarkable list of events that have happened all in one year. And so it's providential that we find ourselves in the book of James that starts off in chapter or in verse 1 chapter 1 verse 2 count it all joy my brothers when you meet trials of various kinds for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Count it all joy, even in a year like 2020. Count it all joy, because there are going to be trials of various kinds that we will face in this life. Personal trials, trials within our community, trials within our nation, and trials throughout the world. There are going to be trials And here's what's going on. They are tests. That's the word James used. These trials that we face are tests that we have to endure. And God has a purpose for these tests, purpose for you, to see how you will respond to them. He has a purpose to see how you're going to respond to the tests He puts before you 
for a different purpose to produce in you steadfastness, perfection, completion. All of the trials we face, all of the tests that we face in this life, God has a purpose for them. He's doing something through them and in His people. He is producing steadfastness, perfection, and completion in His people. The book of John, really when you get down to it, is about the practice of faith in the world. The practice of faith in the world. Now, what do I mean by practice? Practice really has two senses that we use it in, that we see it in a lot. The first is the the practice that we all kind of think about when we're doing piano practice or practice at a sporting event. It's It's this idea of doing something over and over and over and over again to get better at it, right? To improve at some kind of skill or at some kind of activity, that kind of practice. But there's also a second sense of practice, and and the word really means when you get down to it, doing it, performance, doing something. And so we practice to, to perfect something so that we can do it better. And this sense comes in more frequently when we talk about something like the practice of medicine. Doctors practice medicine when they are out there. and They're not just, you know, trying to get better at it. Hopefully they're doing it well when they're doing it to you. Uh, But the same thing goes true with lawyers, right? Lawyers practice law. That's what I do at my day job. I practice the law. So those two senses of, of preparing for something and also performing an activity. So the book of James is about that with the Christian life. That's what the book of James is about, the practice of our faith. Now, when I went to law school, before I went to law school even, I was already taking tests. One of the things you have to do to try to get to law school is you have to take the LSAT, the L-S-A-T. And I remember having to take practice test after practice test after practice test to prepare for my LSAT. And once I took the LSAT, though, the work was just beginning. Then it was picking a law school and going to school for three years, sitting in class after class after class. And I remember in law school what they do, and one of the things I really enjoyed about it was they use what's called the Socratic method. And some of you have maybe been in a classroom setting where they've used the Socratic method. And one of my favorite professors, a a professor by the name of Professor Works, you know, he would stroll into class each day with his oversized sports coat on. You know, but he was a short guy, and he had this huge sports coat on that he would wear, and he'd walk in with his, you know, bottle, uh, Coke bottle glasses on, and he would walk into the room, kind of slunch back like this, just looking around the room on who he was going to pick on that day, and then he'd find somebody in the, in the big auditorium, and he'd say, Mr. Mr. Thornton over there, and, like, and he'd start asking questions. And the whole classroom was him asking questions to person after person after person to see if they had prepared for the class, if they were ready to answer the questions. And with each question, he'd you know, spin off a different hypothetical, trying to make it interesting and trying to get us to think about what we were discussing what we were talking about. And after law school was over, the work still wasn't done because there's a big test that every lawyer has to pass, the bar exam. 
And I remember the, before the bar exam, you have a, a bar review class that you have to take. And they give you these big books, this big stack of books that have all the, the, the different practices of law in, in your state and all the laws and all the rules that apply to that practice. And you'd have a, a, an actual lawyer stand up there in front of the class and tell you all of the answers to the test. He'd just walk through these books and he'd say, oh, if you see this question on the test, here's what you answer. Here's the law on this issue. Here's the law on this issue. And I remember sitting through that class and going, well, why did I go to law school if I could have just sat through one of these courses, you know? But they told us the answers to the test to prepare us for the big test that would actually introduce us to the practice of law in the state of Texas. And there we sat for three days taking that test to prove we had what it took inside of us to be lawyers, all right? All of that activity, all of those things that that we did over all of those years were there to prepare us for the practice of law, doing it on a daily basis for our clients. And all of the tests that we face as Christians that God puts us through on a consistent basis are there for a purpose to prepare us for something to perfect us in something. And so today, as we kind of wind up the book of James, this is your review course, all right? I thought for a moment uh, that I might do this kind of like my teachers did, a Socratic method, and just start calling on people in the crowd, see who's been here over the past summer and see what we've learned. But we're going to go through the book of James, and what I want to show you is that the book of James is this. It's the answer key for the tests of life. It's just like my bar review course. It's some, you can go through the book of James and you can see the answers for how we face the tests that we're going to face. And so that's what we're going to do today. This is going to be a little bit of a review course. We're going to look at the answers to the final exam. You guys ready? All right, I'll ask the questions and you think about them as I ask them and then we'll answer them together. All right, here, here we go. We'll go off to the bat. Now, One of the first things that every professor, every teacher that I've ever had has said, when you take a test, there's one thing that's that's very, very important to do. There's one thing you have to do with every test that you take. What is that? Everybody should know this. You write your name at the top of the test, all right? That's number one. You write your name at the top. If you don't write your name at the top, they don't know who took the test. Well, James doesn't quite say it that way. He doesn't doesn't do that, but he gives us some equally good advice before taking the test of life. The first thing he says to us in the book of James is this is the first thing you should do when you get to your test, when you're facing a trial. Here it is. In James chapter 1, verses 5, he says this, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given to him. That's writing your name on the test of the Christian life, asking God for wisdom in the midst of the trials. That's writing your name on the paper. Now, the next thing we need to ask ourselves is when we face these trials, when we're we're thrown into the midst of some trial, who should we trust? Who should we trust or what should we trust? What should we put our trust in? That's the next question that James is answering in this book. Where does our trust go in the midst of the trials? Here's the answer to that. Well, let's, let's 
put out a couple options on here. This is a multiple choice test. Should we put our trust in our circumstances? Is that where we put our trust in the midst of a trial? If we're rich or if we're poor? No, James says, the lowly brother boasts in his exaltation. It doesn't matter if you're poor. And the rich person in his humiliation. It doesn't matter if you're rich. Okay? We don't trust in our circumstances in the midst of trials. Well, I, I know what it is. Here's, the, here's B. Here's, here's B, option B. Do we trust in ourselves? You know, that's the answer in every Walt Disney movie, right? If you dig down deep within yourself, you'll find the strength to do it? Is that the right answer? Is that the answer James gives us? No. He says, he says to us, uh, each person who is tempted is lured and enticed by his own desire. We fail tests because of what's inside of us. That's why we fail. We get drawn away and tempted away because of what's in us naturally. That's not where we put our trust. James gives us the answer of where we put our trust in James 1, chapter 17. And really, this is the, or 1, verse 17, this is really the key to the in, entire test right here, this verse, all right? Every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. What do we trust? Not in our circumstances, not deep down in ourselves, willing ourselves to success. That's not where we put our trust. We put our trust in the good God from whom all good things come. So there we go. That, that, those are the initial answers to the test. All right, so here's, here's the next set of questions, the more application side of the, of the test, all right? Is it good enough to come to church and to just hear the good news preached? Is it good enough to just come to a, a sermon like this and just get the answers to the test? Is that good enough to be hearers only? Of course it's not. Of course it's not. And James spends a good amount of time saying it's not the hearers who are just in God's sight, it's the doers. It's not good enough to be hearers only we must be doers. And so what do we do? What does that look like? What does it look like to be doers? Well, James gives us a preview of it in James chapter 1, verses 27. Hey, this would be a, you know, we have these, these Bibles, nice Bibles stacked up here on the sides of the road. If you don't have a Bible, it would be great to follow. You can follow along. You can get all the answers to the test right along with me if you want to pick one of those up and turn to James. But in James 1, 27... He says this, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and, to, and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained by the world. We do that. We do that. We take care of those who need it. And we separate ourselves from the ways of the world. We stay in the world, but we keep ourselves unstained by the ways of the world. And so we'll take a look at that, what that looks like even more, because James goes on giving answers to the tests of life. And he, he says this, he answers this question, what rule should govern, govern all of our interactions with other people? 
What is the one rule that summarizes all of the ways we interact with our fellow men and women in this world? What is it? Okay, he says this in in James chapter 2, verse 8. If you really fulfill the royal law according to Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, right? That's the answer of how we uh, interact with those around us, of how we, uh, we love our neighbor as ourselves. So what does that look like? And he gives some, he gives some examples here. What does that look like in our lives? You know, suppose you have someone in the church who is in need or someone that you know who's in need. Okay, what do you, what do, you do? Suppose it's, it's spend time with them or spend your, your limited time that you have with that person or spend it with somebody who can meet your needs. How should we do that? You know, what is the way this church should operate? Should we operate on a basis where we want the people who have the money and who have the resources to, to come in through these doors and we're going to treat them in a special way so that we can make sure and get big buildings, you know, take care of our ministries, take care of our staff? Is that the way we operate the church? Do we look after our interests or do we look after the interests of others? Do you view people by what they can do for you, or do you view people by how you can help them? There's kind of a a Kennedy-esque view here of ask not what others can do for you, but what you can do for others, right? James talks about that when he talks about not showing partiality to people in this world. We don't look at other people through the lens of how they can serve us, but how we have already been served by God, and the grace that He has given to us should flow out to others. So if there's no grace coming out of your life, chances are there's no grace coming into your life. Here's a question. Well, here's, here's how James really says it. He says it in James 2, verse 26. For as the body apart from the spirit is, of, is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. If grace is not flowing out, if you're not working because of the grace that's been given to you, chances are you're failing the test of whether there's living faith. Now here's a question that James gives us that maybe we don't think about as often as we should. What is the most dangerous thing about you? What's the most dangerous thing you have to look out for? He tells us in James chapter 3, verses 7, he says it very clearly, the tongue the way we speak. And I'm sure that if he were here today, he would add to that text to the fingers. Not just what we say, but what we type, what we post, the way we express ourselves. James' view here of the tongue is what comes out of us when we speak or when we type 
and sometimes even more so when we type because we're really thinking about what we have to type, right? It says a lot about what's in our heart. And he describes it in stark terms. He says, for every kind of beast and bird and reptile, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. You see, your tongue, what you speak and what you say, is a great mirror into who you really are, to what's inside of you. And there's nothing, i tell you what, preparing for this week, there's nothing in what I've seen here today. I, all of this convicts me. I have failed all of these tests on numerous occasions, but probably none mo- more clearly than that one. That's true both in what I say, and I'm sure in what many of us say, in the heat of anger, when we're frustrated, or what we post online, when we see something we don't like and feel like we have to respond in the moment. It is a dangerous thing, and it is a test that God puts before us, and we can gauge whether we're failing or whether we're succeeding. So what does wisdom sound like? We can acknowledge that many times when we speak or when we type, we say things that are unwise, that we look back later and say, oh, wish I hadn't said that. Wish I didn't type that. Wish I had read that one more time before I hit send. All of us can think of times maybe where we have done that. So what does wisdom actually look like? What would it be to look, to actually speak with wisdom, to actually live with wisdom? How does that look? Well, James gives us the answer to those questions in James chapter 3, verse 13. Number one, who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. Wise speech is always accompanied by humble action. Virtue signaling is not a virtue. Thinking we can post something or say something that makes us seem a certain way, but that is not accompanied by appropriate and humble action does you no good. Does you no good. The answer to the test, ladies and gentlemen, is not just to say the right thing, but to do the right thing with humility. And then James says this in chapter 3, verse 17. He says, but the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, then gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. Good fruits. It is full of the fruits of the Spirit. It is full of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness and self-control. That's what wise speech looks like. And as we probably maybe after this go through and scan through our, our posting history, maybe we can assess, is what I posted full of those things? Is what I said full of that? 
or not. Again, I stand up here convicted of having failed many tests. But that's okay. That's okay because in that failure, God is hopefully perfecting. James asked this question, what causes quarrels and fights among you? What causes that? That's his question. He's using the Socratic method here with his audience that he's writing to. And then he answers his question with a rhetorical question. He says this, is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? That you're trying to seek your own way? You're trying to get what you want? That's James' answer is seeking after your own way is how conflict arises. When he has told us to love our neighbor as ourself. Seeking your own way is inconsistent with love. There is a, you know, that great love chapter in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 where the Apostle Paul, you all probably had it read at your wedding if you're married or, or one day you might or you probably all heard it somewhere or it's posted somewhere on a plaque in your home. That great love chapter. What is love? Love is patient. Love is kind. Does not envy. Does not boast. Is not rude is not irritable, does not seek its own way. See, fights and quarrels arise among us because we're not obeying rule number one. Rule number two, really. Rule number one is love God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Rule number two is love your neighbor as yourself. We're not loving, and that's why fights and quarrels arise amongst us. And so what is the answer to that? What is the way to change that? And again, James gives the answer to that question in chapter 4, verses 6. But he gives more grace. It's the grace of God is what changes that. He gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud. If you are proud, you will feel the opposition of God. There are more tests coming. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Humility is the answer. The humbling of God, the putting into proper perspective who you are before your creator. That's what humility is. Humility, at the end of the day, isn't just thinking you're terrible all the time or or putting yourself last. It's having the appropriate perspective of who you are before your Creator, and what your role is. And we're going to explain that more by the end of this sermon. But God opposes the proud. He gives them more tests. He will get that pride out of you. But He gives grace to the humble. He is perfecting you. In chapter 4, verses 10, we read this, God exalts those who are humbled. He says, humble yourselves before the Lord and He will exalt you. Realize that you are His creature and He will exalt you. Try to do it the other way in pride and He will humble you. 
So here's a question that is very important for all of this. This, this, is, this is how we get to that humility. This is how we understand our place before the God that we worship. Here's the question. Who is in control of your life? Who's in control of all of this? Are you in control of your life? That's not what James says. Matter of fact, he warns us about even boasting about tomorrow. He says, don't even boast about what you're going to do tomorrow. You're going to go do this. I have these plans. This is what I'm going to accomplish. He says, don't even do that. Instead, he says, only say this. If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. You see, that humility that he was just talking about is produced in us when we realize that it's God who's in control, not us. God's in control of our lives. And when we realize that, that he is in control, it puts us in proper perspective to our Creator. And we just ask, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? So finally, as, as, Paul, as James concludes the book, he begins to discuss how we should live in light of that. And he addresses a particular question, is how should we live in this world amidst the trials? And he addresses a specific class of individuals, the rich. And he says, in light of the fact that God is in control of your life, why are you living like you can control it, trying to hoard up treasures for yourselves in the midst of the trials. Isn't that our tendency? Isn't that even what we do at certain level when we see a hurricane coming or when a pandemic strikes, right? What was, what was the characteristic that happened in early March? What was the thing that people did in early March when all of a sudden it was announced, uh-oh, here comes the pandemic. They rushed to the grocery stores and began hoarding for themselves, of all things, toilet paper, right? Is that how we should live in this age of trials, of persecutions, of trying to hoard for ourselves every little thing to try to get us through it? That's not what James says. He excoriates the rich, the people who are holding for themselves their own wealth, and even sometimes doing it by fraud. He says that's not how you live in this age, even in the midst of trials and tribulations, of, of testing. He says no. He says this in, in chapter 5, verses 7. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it? until it receives the early and late rains, so also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. See, here's the question as we finish our test preparation. Who is grading your test? Who's going to grade it? Your Lord is. Your Master is grading your tests. Now, as we kind of conclude our test prep, there's some general errata that I like to throw out there that's really important for and helpful for those of us who take tests. 
One is, of course, to know that the person who's grading it, what their standards are, so that we can at least try to know what it is we should do and how we should perform on this test. And I've tried to give you as many answers as James provides to that. But the last one here, or one of the last ones here, I think is really important. I don't know, maybe this dates me a little bit, but one of the things that I was always uh, you know, told while I was taking tests is that many times these tests were on those Scantron sheets. Do they still use those? I don't know if they do or not. I'm assuming that they still use Scantrons, but I think you can use pen now. You can, you know, they'll, they'll pick up a lot of different things. But I was always told, use a number two pencil, right? And when you answer that thing, make sure it's filled in nice and dark so that when it goes through the scanner, it can be read. Well, James, I think here at the end, gives a similar type of advice when he says this, above all. You know, above all, even if you get all the answers right, above all, my brothers, do not swear either by earth or by, or by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, that you may not fall under condemnation. You see, when you do these things, fill in that scantron as dark as you can. There should be no double-mindedness about your activity. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. You see, God is looking and He wants people of earnestness, people of truth, whose yes means yes and whose no means no. No deception. No smudges on your answer sheet. No lightly filled in bubbles because you're not sure. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Do what's right. And then finally, as we talked about last week, we need other people. We need other people. As you continue to prepare for the tests of life, there really is no substitute for other people to help you along the way. And that's why James kind of concludes here in chapter 5 by saying this, Therefore confess your sins one another to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power in its working. We need people. When I was in school, and especially in law school, one of the most valuable tools that I had in that process were the study groups that would form. We'd get into our class, we'd find out who our, who our peers were in our classroom, and we'd go off and read by ourselves, but to prepare for the class, we knew what was coming, and the questions that we knew would come, we sat together as a group, and we asked each other questions, and we talked through the material. And we tried to figure out what was the right answer. What issues should we spot here? What should we see about this case? How did it work? A few minutes, the tests of life. And oftentimes when we go through these tests, we're wrong. We fail. And we need people in our lives who we can confess that to. And who can point it out to us. And who can call us back to the truth. And who can help us especially by praying for us. We need that help. We need that assistance. So hopefully, 
you're now prepared for your final exams. Hopefully, you're now prepared to go out into the world, at least to some degree, at least more so than when you came in here, to face the tests of life. Hopefully. Just a little bit more. Hopefully, this has been a good prep for you. Because we want to be a church that passes the tests. What are we getting ready for? I talked about the two senses in which we use the word practice. And, of course, one is preparing But what are we preparing for? What are we preparing for? If you're a pianist and you practice daily for hours and hours a day, you're preparing for the concert, right? If you're a football player and you're practicing with your team, you're preparing hopefully one day for the Super Bowl. If you're a doctor or if you're a lawyer, you're preparing to either perform the surgery or to Answer, ask questions in the trial, right? There's something, the, the actual performance part of your practice that you're getting ready for. Well, what is that for the Christian? What is our big game? What is the point of our preparation? Well, to answer that question, I want to do this. Uh, in the beginning of James, in James chapter 1, verse 1, he starts off his letter this way. He says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. He describes himself as a servant. We are servants of our master, Jesus Christ. That's our role. And as we are preparing, as we are being perfected by him, we are being prepared and perfected by God to be better and better servants to serve our God the way He wants. And if you recall, in Matthew chapter 28, our Master has given us a mission. He's given us a mission, and this is the mission that He has given to us. He says, And Jesus came and He said to them, His disciples, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. God has commanded his servants, Jesus has commanded his servants to make disciples and to teach them what we should do. And it's in light of that that we can understand why James, the brother of Jesus, would end his book with this. He says this in verses 19 and 20. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. The practice of faith that God is perfecting us into his servants is for the purpose of evangelism and discipleship. The purpose of this book is so that we might become good servants for our Lord. Now, to illustrate this, I want to remind you of a parable that Jesus uses in the book of Matthew where he talks about a sower 
who goes around and he begins throwing seed on the ground, begins planting. And as he casts his seed on the ground, it falls on different kind of ground. It falls first on a path, and while it's on this path, birds come and they eat it and carry it away. Then it falls on rocky ground, and as it's on the rocky ground, the, the rocks don't allow roots to grow, and so it, it dies, it withers away falls amongst thorns, and eventually those thorns choke out whatever growth there is, and, the, and the, the seed dies. But some of it falls on good soil. And Jesus explains each of these soils in chapter 13. He says this, Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches it away, what has been, snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. And for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or when persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. The testing comes and it shows the character of his faith. As for, that, as for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. For what was sown on good soil, as for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it, he indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, and in another sixty, and in another thirty. If you put that parable over what we have just discussed in James, you can begin to see what James is doing. He's shown that, that if a person doesn't understand, they don't have faith, obviously. They haven't gotten, received the wisdom that God is good. If a person has you know, heard it and initially received it with joy, but you know what? Then persecutions comes, the trials come, and they fall away from the truth. They haven't withstood the trials. They haven't passed the tests. And then you can see why he excoriates the problems of riches in the book of James. Because those are the things that choke out the faith as we come to rely on our riches instead of on God himself. And so what we need is the good soil. And so the question becomes, how do we get good soil? How do we get good ground? Well, I have news. It's, it's really, at the end of the day, not up to us. God is the one who tills the ground. He tills the soil of the human heart so that the gospel will take root. But he uses means. And one of the means that he uses is the church behind the plow, pushing the plow. The good works and faithfulness of the church tills the ground of the heart. 
want us to watch a quick video here. I apologize for those who are on the live stream. I understand the sound may not come through as well as we'd like, but there are subtitles, so you can follow along even if you're, even if you're watching at home and still understand what's being said. But let's watch that, and then we'll mention a couple things about it real quick. So did you catch it? I don't know if you could read it all and, and catch it all, but there were two things that changed an entire culture. And the first thing is, he said is that we didn't want to change, but then we saw how they lived. And after they saw how they lived, they could hear what they said. They heard the gospel because of how they lived their lives. Now, this may be melodramatic, and I understand that, but we live in a day and age where the, we're living in a society that is quickly becoming a society of virtual headhunters. Headhunters politically, racially. We're splitting apart, and it will do us no good to join them. We must live as Christians differently. And how do we do that in a world that is more and more becoming fractured and divided? How do we live that way? Well, James 1.17, recognizing that God is the giver of all perfect gifts, is the foundation there. And God's goodness, if you have ever missed it, is seen most clearly and perfectly in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let me give you one last piece of testing advice before we close, and here it is. Now, this is not for those of you who are currently in school. I'm not advising this as a testing tactic, but I know one of the best pieces of advice I ever received was to sit behind the smartest person in the room <laughs> or next to them, all right? I've learned a lot from other Christians by watching other Christians through the faithfulness of my parents of Christian brothers and sisters, through the forgiveness of my wife, even through the love of my kids, through the boldness of pastors who preach the gospel from the pulpit weekly. But all of those are at some level just a pale shadow of the person of Jesus Christ. When we encounter him in the gospel, we see what goodness looks like. And it's through a vision of Christ, really, that our souls, our hearts, are tilled to hear the gospel so that we have good soil upon which the gospel can grow. And so even Paul says this, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And so if we're going to pass the tests that are to come, and they will come, it's not even November yet. If we're going to pass these tests that are to come, we must pick up our crosses and follow Christ. Let's pray that we do that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to pass the tests, but we want the tests to keep coming. Lord, I pray for this people that the tests will come and that they will have your intended effect of perfecting your people as your servants, 
for your purposes of saving sinners. May this be a church that does that faithfully and that learns, sometimes through our mistakes, always through your word, so that we can do good in this world and be good servants of yours always. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.